Hello, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer, and you're listening to Spotlight On, a special series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. Today, we'll be talking about chronic heart failure, a condition that can look different in patients depending on their race, gender, and socioeconomic status. But regardless of background, we'll hear how advocating for yourself can create a different outcome after an unexpected diagnosis. Joining me today is a very special guest, Dr. James Januzzi. He is a professor at Harvard Medical School and a cardiologist at Mass General. Dr. Januzzi, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Dr. White, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You know, we talk about heart disease, this very broad term, and most of us think about coronary artery disease. But when people hear the word heart failure, what should they be thinking about? It's such an important question. And as I tell my patients, education is so important because understanding the diagnosis is the key to optimally treating whatever diagnosis we may be talking about. And in the case of heart failure, boy, is it complicated because heart failure exists in multiple different ways. There are patients that have heart failure due to a weakened heart muscle. There are persons who have heart failure due to a stiff non-compliant heart muscle. And so understanding that this is really more of a general term is important so that our patients can better understand what's wrong with their heart in particular so that we can more directly and effectively treat it. But Dr. Chinuzzi, some people could hear you say it's complicated, right? And that, that's going to scare them a little. Is heart failure scary? It's a scary term, but is it a scary disease? Great question. Heart failure, unfortunately, carries a a rather poor prognosis, even with the excellent treatments that we now have available for it. It's estimated that the risk for dying from heart failure is around 50% at five years, if not adequately treated. So in some ways, heart failure has a worse mortality risk than many forms of cancer. And we don't often hear that. You know, one thing we had chatted about prior to today is how does heart failure differ from men versus women and for people of color? What do you see in your practice? We see some real differences in each of those groups that you just mentioned. And so as is often the case in medicine, which was a very patriarchal field, you know, when you and I trained, the paradigm for heart failure was often based on what white men presented with. But it turns out there's a lot more diversity in how heart failure may present itself. So for example, although men are more likely to present with a weakened heart muscle related to blocked up coronary arteries, women are more likely to present at an older age with a normal squeezing strength of the heart and the heart failure is due to other factors such as high blood pressure or diabetes. With respect to racial and ethnic differences, we see some very striking differences. In particular, black men are much more likely to present at considerably younger age than other races and ethnicities and have a much worse prognosis as a consequence. 
Let me stop you right there, because young means different things to different people. Sure. So what age should they be thinking about it? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we think about it in medical terms and in clinical research terms, we consider younger patients under age 50. And I think people would agree that that's a relatively young age, really, when we think medically speaking. I think it's very young. Yes. Just put it out there. Younger than me. So that's as far as I'm concerned, it's young. But it's really striking to see the incidence of new cases of heart failure among black men is strikingly higher in that underage 50 category. But why is that? It just can't be blood pressure. Right. We, we tend to think about that. And you mentioned blood pressure. But what else is going on there? And is it the same for black women? Let me start by saying, before I answer that question, that we have recently published data looking at the projected incidence of new cases of heart failure out for the next 40 years. And what we found in our research was that heart failure is likely to increase by around 35% in the next 40 years in the United States, but particularly disproportionately affect populations such as black and Hispanic individuals. Now, why is that? To answer your question, it's not really a racial predisposition because race is really a social construct when you think about it. There are many other reasons that speak to the social determinants of health that our patients you know, struggle with. Inadequate access to quality health care, pressures with respect to work, you know, careers. People are not able to take time off from work to go see the doctor. There are challenges with respect to nutrition. There's a high prevalence of diabetes, hypertension, and other risk factors that culminate in a higher risk for heart failure. So for all these reasons, put together the medical aspects and the social aspects, it's not so hard to understand why populations such as our minoritized populations, Black, Hispanic, and others, have a higher rate of heart failure. What if you were an affluent person of color? How does your risk for heart failure compare to a poor Caucasian? Because when we look at infant mortality, a woman of color who is affluent may still have the same risks as someone who is poor and Caucasian, because it's not just as simple as access to care at times as well. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it's a very accurate statement, and it speaks to the importance of, you know, again, these determinants, these social aspects that may predispose us to medical conditions. So, for example, there are areas of the United States that are quite isolated from quality health care where the rates of heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular illnesses, regardless of the color of one's skin, are dramatically higher than in more settled or urban populations. In heart failure, we have several treatments that can reduce mortality dramatically, but if one cannot afford or receive those therapies, it's not going to be of any benefit for them. I want to hear more about the treatment options. When a patient comes sees you, because you're an expert in it, so they've already gone through the process, they've been diagnosed, what do you tell that patient? What do you tell their loved one that typically comes in with them? Treatment for heart failure, as we'll discuss, involves several medications that frequently need to be changed. One of the biggest 
obstacles to adequate care for our patients in heart failure has been this methodical, slow process of medical adjustments, frequently challenged by the fact that clinicians will develop inertia. They won't move to make changes. And patients sometimes don't understand why their therapies need to be changed. So by educating immediately up front that this is going to be an active, dynamic process with numerous changes in medications, we essentially bring our patients and their families into the decision-making process so that we can make this a very successful effort. And that doesn't mean if adjustments are made that a patient is doing something wrong. Sometimes that's the progression of the disease. Talk to us about where we are with treatments. What I tell my patients is that there are medicines that are a foundation. They are the bricks in the wall that they cannot do without. And there are four classes of drugs that block different pathways that are abnormal in heart failure. These four classes we'll touch on very briefly. We won't get too deep into it, but include beta blockers, which block adrenaline, a medicine called Secubitril Valsartan, big mouthful, but basically it's two drugs, one of which is a drug that blocks the effects of a hormone called angiotensin. It's a bad hormone, so we want to block that. But in addition, this medicine blocks the breakdown of good things in the bloodstream, so it raises the concentration of several substances that are beneficial. The other two classes are a class called aldosterone antagonists. They block a bad hormone called aldosterone. Spironolactone is the classical example of that drug. And then the last is a really curious development. These are medications that were developed for diabetes called SGLT2 inhibitors, but they actually have a profound benefit in heart failure regardless of whether a person does or doesn't have diabetes. And so we tell our patients whenever possible, we want to use all four classes of those drugs. So we start them relatively quickly and then we try to adjust upwards in the doses of each. There are devices including pacemakers and defibrillators to shock a heart arrhythmia if a person is at risk. But generally, our patients begin with medical therapy because if the medical therapy causes a restorative effect on the heart function, those pacemaker-type devices might not be necessary. And it also differs acute heart failure versus chronic, correct? If someone has an exacerbation, it's worsening, that's when you're going to be make those adjustments. And they may or may not stay on those same doses either. Yeah, that's very correct. So often patients are diagnosed for the first time with heart failure when they present to the hospital with acute heart failure related to fluid buildup and congestion. So often in that situation, we'll use diuretics, water pills, to clear out the fluid. But then very quickly, we get that core four classes of drugs in place when we can. So what does someone today that's been diagnosed with heart failure, what do they need to know from listening to this podcast today? So I will give you three things that a person should take away from the podcast with respect to their care. The first is that the treatments that we use for heart failure, each individually are critically important to help them feel better and live longer. The second is that self-care is critically important in the diagnosis of heart failure. And this includes, among other things, being attentive to one's blood pressure, 
being attentive to one's exercise program, and importantly, for those individuals who are prone to fluid buildup, congestion, watching their weights and making sure that they alert their physician if their heart failure is decompensating. Lastly, critically important, and I tell my patients at each visit that they need to remember that there is always hope with this diagnosis and that we can almost always help them feel better if they feel as if they are worsening. So being open in communication is critically important. Do not suffer alone. Do not suffer in silence. Participate in your care with your care team. Dr. Januzzi, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing? I appreciate that. Um, Our team at the Mass General Heart Center is very active in the care of patients with heart failure. We have a very, very successful medical therapy program, a very successful program for device therapy, including artificial heart implantation and transplantation. Massachusetts General Hospital is a wonderful place for patients to research for their heart failure care. So I really encourage them to look into it. Dr. James Januzzi, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. We'll be back after a quick break. And now back to our episode. My next guest is going to tell us how we manage with heart failure and how we be good patient advocates. Rhonda, thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, John. It's my pleasure. Rhonda, your story is a little different than the typical older person who develops heart failure. Can you share with our listeners how you became diagnosed with heart failure? Absolutely. And that's funny that you mentioned it because one of the first things I noticed is that I'm the youngest person in this club. (laughs) So I was 36 years old. I was five days postpartum nursing my daughter. I put her back in the cradle and I had a massive heart attack. Wow. I called 911 after looking in the mirror and saying to myself, I don't think I'm having a heart attack. And then quickly conceded that I was. I went to the hospital But because I was a young woman who had no other risk factors, I was thin, I wasn't overweight, I didn't smoke, all the typical things that lead to heart failure. And you're a postpartum. And I was postpartum. And so initially, no one thought that I was having cardiac issues for an entire week. But a week later, I was diagnosed with an acute myocardial infarction, and I dissected five of my coronary arteries. I had open heart surgery emergently. I had a quadruple bypass. And then I continued to have issues. And over the next couple months, my heart function began to deteriorate. And in September, my daughter was born in May. In September, I went into the hospital because I had developed arrhythmias. And I had an internal defibrillator implanted. And at that time, I was told that my ejection fraction was 21% and that I was in heart failure. Do they know why you had a heart attack? I had no idea. Really just ascribed it to postpartum. Just the stress of pregnancy on my body is what they thought. So I um, 
went to cardiac rehab. And that's when I said, oh, my gosh, really? Well, even before cardiac rehab, looking on the hospital ward where I spent quite some time, uh, months at a time, and I certainly was the youngest person there. And my prognosis wasn't very good because eight months after I had the initial heart attack, And then I had uh, the bypass and the defibrillator implanted. I found myself back in a cath lab, and I was told that all my bypass grafts had shut down and that I should call a family meeting and get my affairs in order because I wasn't going to survive. Well, that was the wrong answer for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not one to... To take those odds. And so instead of calling a family meeting to get my affairs in order, I called a friend and I asked that friend to bring me my laptop. And I started calling around the country to the top heart centers, asking if anyone would take my case. Do you think they were treating you differently because you were young, you're a woman, a person of color? Initially, absolutely. I was young. I was African-American. And the thought was for so long that heart disease was for middle-aged white guys. I mean, let's be frank about it. And so I didn't look like a typical heart patient. So at that point, no one was returning my calls. And uh, I reached out to my cardiologist and I said, look, no one is calling me back. The surgeon won't call me back. And she said, Don't you think that if everyone thinks that it's a lost cause, don't you think there may be some merit to that? I said, absolutely not. (laughs) No one thought I was having a heart attack. And I was right. I'm always right when it comes to me. And that's what I kept saying. I'm not a medical doctor, but I am educated. I have three degrees and I'm an expert on Rhonda. Were you getting mad or were you getting sad? What were you feeling at that time? No one's calling you back. Oh, I was getting pissed. (laughs) I'm sorry for saying that, but I was getting very angry. I was like, why don't these people care that I have three small children and I'm fighting for my life? Does anyone care that these kids will be left without a mother? If I die, I'm going to die trying. Wow. I'm not going to concede. So I called the reporter. I called him in and I gave him this great story. And he took a picture of me laying in my hospital bed and I made the front page of the DC Examiner. And uh, that Monday, then administrators, of course, get wind of it. And then the surgeon comes back and says, so many people have asked me about you (laughs) that I'll take another look at you. (laughs) Mission accomplished. I want to talk about your relationship with your physicians, with the healthcare providers, because here you've had some challenges in terms of them communicating with you. You went through these extraordinary efforts to get attention. What's your relationship today with healthcare providers? I have a phenomenal relationship with a lot of doctors now. And it was really my desire to overcome the barriers that led to my delayed diagnosis and the damage to my heart. And I wasn't speaking their language. They could not hear me. For whatever reason, I was telling them what was wrong with me, but they were looking at me and could not 
grasp what I was saying. So I learned the language. Hmm. I really became quite versed in cardiovascular care so that when I speak to them now, they often ask me, are you a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Because you've gone from you're calling in reporters to your hospital bed to now you're having good conversations with your providers. What's your advice to listeners as to how you become a good advocate? Because everyone's not going to be able to understand medical terminology and physiology as well as you have. You've done a great job. It is so critical that you become a partner in your care. And that partnership really begins with seeking a provider who listens to you, who takes time to understand your unique situation. And then the onus really is on you to know as much as you can know about your disease because no one has a greater stake in this than you. And so you don't have to become me and understand all of the medical terminology and all of that and the physiology of it. But what you do have to know is what you need to do what the best and current medications are that are available. And that means you do a little bit of research. You stay on top of your condition so that if your provider who may be crunched for time and seeing a myriad of patients doesn't mention it to you, that you're able to bring this up to them. And then really taking accountability, making the lifestyle changes, following the guideline-directed medical therapy protocols, being proactive. So not just lifestyle changes in terms of smoking cessation or major things like that, but get out and walk a little bit every day. And you're advocating for yourself and patients. You've been blogging. You have a great quote that talks about heart failure is a chronic condition, which means the treatment is ongoing. And so does your advocacy. You started on a niche advocacy organization called Boost. Tell us about that. I did. I launched Boost. And Boost is an acronym for Better Outcomes, Optimal Scientific Therapies. And I launched Boost because in my past life, I was an economist and a research analyst. And I believe that empirical evidence is important. And so there's a real, real lag in um, what we research and what happens in practice. And I saw an opportunity for the patient voice to have input into what happens to patients for a very long period of time. Patients were at the mercy of researchers, of doctors, of industry, pharmaceutical companies, and really had no say in the therapies that they were getting, even though they were targeted toward them. And so I saw a real opportunity to raise the patient voice and the patient perspective so that we remain central to healthcare because it's about us. This is such a success story, Rhonda. I'm still picturing you in the hospital bed. I mean, you've had multiple heart attacks. Your arteries are clogged and you're calling the press saying, I'm going to get surgery. I mean, you are a superwoman. Rhonda Monroe, thank you for sharing your story today and for all you're doing that really inspires patients 
to be their own advocates. Because as you point out, your life can depend upon that. It really does depend on it. And you have the greatest stake. Heart failure is not a failure. It's a matter of heart function and it can be improved. Rhonda, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's been my pleasure. A big thank you to Rhonda Monroe and Dr. James Chinuzzi for being part of our show today. And to all of you for listening to Spotlight On, our special edition of the Health Discovered podcast. I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, reminding you that better information leads to better health. Until next time.